Good morning, church. My name is Marwan. I serve as one of the pastors here at City Bible Church, and I want to begin this morning uh, by telling you about a hamburger that I ate on Friday. Um, I should mention for any guests that are with us this morning that my sermons, uh, the Lord will keep me and hold me to be faithful to his word, will always highlight the incredible beauty of the gospel, the good news of the Christian faith, the message of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and very often, maybe even as a close second, I will make references to food. And so this hamburger, uh, I, I got it at the Bros, uh, which is just a restaurant down the street from here. It's not just any hamburger. Uh, it's a hamburger that's worthy of the sermon. Uh, they call it the home run. It's an off-menu item, which means you have to know about that. Uh, and now you know, so I'm, I'm happy to be able to share that good news with you. It's a single patty that's cooked to a medium doneness. And what makes it special that it, is that it's topped with a fried chicken breast. Uh, I asked them to dip it in buffalo sauce, hold the lettuce, make it a combo, jalapenos on the side. It's delicious. Um, even now, let me drink some water. I can barely finish it, but I'm always faithful to do so. Now, I try not to think about health or calories while I'm eating it because it's a treat for me. Uh, I, I don't do it often. Now, these past few weeks have felt long and heavy. Uh, th this past week, for, for various different reasons, was also heavier than usual. Now, if you were at community group on Wednesday night, I shared with you all that I was feeling weary and I thank you for your prayers. I feel strengthened this morning. But with all of that, I convinced myself that I needed that treat. And so I had that burger this week. Now, uh, why in the world am I telling you this? Well, because if you go to the bros and you tell them my name, uh, and I'm just joking, there's no discounts or any sort of special hookups. No, I'm telling you this because as we'll see in a minute, James addresses the passions and desires that are within us. And we will see how they reveal themselves in our lives. There's a sense of self-desire and inner passions that we all have. And they express themselves and manifest themselves in thousands of different ways and in varying degrees. But we all have those moments and those seasons of, I deserve that. I need that. I want that. Now, you might hear that and think, well, that's not that big of a deal. But James shows us that it is. He shows us that the problems in our lives begin with the problems in our heart. In chapter 4, James will continue to teach us what it looks like to be a Christian. Now, he's not teaching us the things that we need to do to become a Christian, right? We understand that faith and salvation aren't things that we can earn. They're not things that we can work towards. And so James is showing us what the Christian life is meant to be, all that it could be, all that it should be. And he's warning us that if our lives look drastically different than the descriptions that we've considered, and that we'll look at today even in the couple uh, following weeks as we finish off the book of James, he's saying that if our lives look drastically different, then we may not truly be Christian. You can say what you want about your faith and about your life as a Christian, but your outward life reflects an inner reality. Now, he, he's writing to Christians, isn't he? And so 
right away we acknowledge that there is a struggle to live well in this broken world. Please hear me. As we've said before, this isn't about perfection. This isn't about sinless living. And yet there is a reality that if a person confesses to be a follower of Jesus and yet looks nothing like Jesus, there's a problem there. And, and it's a problem that he wants us to take seriously. Uh, it's like the concept of the root of a thing and the fruit that we've considered uh, many times before. There's examples of that in every chapter. We can just look even to last week as Serge preached from chapter 3 and the examples that are in there. Uh, we read that a fig tree produces figs, not olives. If it produced olives, it wouldn't be a fig tree, even if it said, I'm a, I'm a fig tree. Right? Just like figs don't grow on a grapevine. A saltwater spring can't produce fresh water. Right? A spring can't produce both bitter and fresh water. And so here's the thing. What you believe directly affects how you live. What you think about God affects how you interact with him. And so if you've been with us for any uh, amount of time here at the church, you'll see why we really care about right doctrine, biblical doctrine. And, and, and James highlights that in so many ways. He shows us that our lives reflect what we believe. And as I was, as I was preparing, I uh, was reminded of uh, maybe A.W. Tozer's most famous quote, uh, it, he used them as the opening of his words to the book on the attributes of God, the knowledge of the holy, and, and he wrote these words. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me say that again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So James wants us to think rightly about God. He wants us to look into the perfect law of freedom as a mirror into our lives. He wants us to believe right things so that we would live in a right way for God's glory and for our good. And so in our passage today, James will point to bad fruit in our lives. He'll show us the root of those things and he gives us a remedy that kind of serves as a sort of overview. The root, the fruit, and the remedy. And the remedy that James gives is maybe the most beautiful part of the book of James. It's certainly one of the most beautiful passages in all of the New Testament. Now, the passage was a bit challenging to break down, not because I was very full all weekend long uh, from that burger, uh, but just in general, the outline is, is, is difficult. Partly because, again, uh, James's influence is the proverb, so he kind of writes in these couplets and doubles, and, and it doesn't have a, a, a very clear flow at times. And so what we'll do this morning is we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 and verses 11 and 12 as one section. These two ends will show the root and the fruit. Are they going to show us the problem of the heart? That's maybe how you can use it to outline in your notes. And that middle section, verses 6 through 10, give us the remedy, the solution for our heart problem. And here is our main point for today. And, and I've been praying that you will see this and that you will believe this. Maybe believing it for the first time or believing it more deeply than you've ever believed it before. There is grace for those who draw near to God. There is grace for those who draw near to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, 
We thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us, recognizing again and afresh this morning that unless you made yourself known to us, unless you showed us who you are, we wouldn't know you, we wouldn't seek after you. Yeah, Father, we have your word. We have your son, we have your people. So speak to us this morning in the way that only you can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to take a look at three heart problems. Two in verses 1 through 5, and then one uh, in verses 11 through 12. And so look with me to the first three verses. Uh, consi- uh, we'll consider uh, the passions and the pleasures. Passions and pleasures. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So James is is looking at the wars and fights among them, and he is pointing to their hearts. Now, this is a general truth uh, for all kinds of fights and all kinds of wars, both on a small scale and on a global scale. But James is addressing fighting within the church. Now, it seems that wars describe an idea of a long-term fight, long-term hurts, while fights might represent arguments or blow-ups that happen, uh, but they end more quickly. He says, don't they come from the passions that wage war within you? So these outside wars come because of the inside wars. Right? And then he describes the wars within. You desire things that you don't have. You try to get them, but you can't get them. And you look at what others have with envy, desiring that they were your things. Right? Th- th- these desires can either be things that you don't have that you want, or they could be things that you want more of, right? Excessive or inordinate desires. Now, I don't know about you, but you might be thinking that James is exaggerating a bit. Maybe he's just being strong, right? Fights? Starting fights and willing to kill someone to get something? Sounds a bit extreme. But if only the Bible had examples uh, to support this. Genesis chapter 4, very early on in the Bible. Cain kills his brother Abel because of jealousy. Genesis chapter 37. Joseph's brothers were going to kill him because of jealousy, but instead they they took the higher road and only sold him into slavery. 1 Samuel chapter 19. King Saul tries to kill David because of envy. 2 Samuel 11. King David sends Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to the front line of the war so that he would die so that he would marry her, be with her. Dozens and dozens of examples, but not only do we have these many real accounts of violence that come from our inner desires, but Jesus addresses this on the Sermon on the Mount. And remember with me, for those of you who are new to the series, the book of James, uh, James is, his letter is almost like an exposition. It's a deeper teaching on Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, on on the Sermon on the Mount. And so we see lots of references. Here's another one of them. Right? Listen to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 22. These are Jesus' words. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I 
tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. In context, it's the same judgment, right? It's the, 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 ju- the judgment and being marked guilty and the punishment that comes with murder. That same root that causes an outburst of anger when it's fully grown can lead to murder. And he uses the same logic to explain the connection between lust and adultery. Right? The same root that makes you look with lust, with kind of sensual desires that a man or a woman, when it's fully grown, can lead to the act of adultery. You see, friends, there is a, there's a deception of self-centeredness. I deserve. I don't have. I need. I want. It's like my burger lunch at the bros. It wasn't just a meal. There was a lot more happening inside me that led to that indulgence. And the outward consequences for my inner desire led to a few extra calories, a few thousand. I have no idea. I don't, again, I don't think about that much anymore. But that's not so bad, right? Uh, and yet, that same inner passion, that deception of self that we all have, can lead us to a whole lot more. That's what James is wanting us to see. And so James wants us to look at our hearts. Listen again to James's words. You do not have because you do not ask. Why don't we ask? Well, there might be lots of reasons, but in this context, it's because we don't want to turn to God. This is a continued offense of choosing ourselves over God. And, and the times that we do go to God, excuse me, uh, and, the, and the times that we don't go to God is because we don't think we need him. We're deceived to think that we can do things on our own strength. And so I'm, it's me, I'm going to figure this out, I don't need you. And yet the times that we do go to God, James points out, is because the focus is still ourselves. We want God to give us what we want for our own purposes, not for his purposes. James points out that the same root, again, inner desires, heart issues, the same root that affects our relationships within the church, the fighting and the wars, the the quarrels and the arguments amongst us, will also affect our our harmony with God. Self-focus and self-deception will affect and disrupt our prayer life. Let's keep reading. Uh, Look at verses 4 to 5. And here we'll consider misplaced priorities. Misplaced priorities. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be a friend, excuse me, the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think that it's without reason that the scripture says, the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely now this feels a bit different than dear brothers and sisters right you adulterous people it it reads with heaviness and it's meant to shock right james is trying to get to our hearts here now you might rightly ask where does adultery come into this conversation again remember he's writing to christians with a jewish background he's writing this letter to the 12 tribes who are dispersed dispersed uh, 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 across the lands. And so they will understand quickly what he's referring to because throughout the Old Testament, God's people were referred to as the bride of God. Or the, the intimacy of God with his people, that beautiful relationship 
is best described, or in most cases described, as, as a marriage. Now, some stories might come to your mind about how God's people were adulterous and they turned away from him. I think uh, a major one is the prophet Hosea. God called him to marry a prostitute. The reason is because it served as a reflection of God's faithful love to his people, just like Hosea's faithful love to his wife, though they are unfaithful to him. So the, the imagery here isn't about romance, it's about devotion, it's about worship. You see, as followers of Jesus, we are called to follow him, to worship him, to take up our cross and deny ourselves. And what that means is that we are denying and renouncing all other hopes that we might have, all other false gods, all other false saviors. And yet, we so quickly wander, don't we? We so quickly are tempted by false idols, temporary hopes. So James is pointing out that our inner passions lead us to look for belonging in the world rather than in God. Look with me to that phrase again, uh, friendship with the world. If if we're honest, again, at first, that doesn't sound that bad. We all have non-Christian friends. I think it's good to have non-Christian friends. That's not the end of the world. Is that what James is talking about? No. To, To be a friend, to be the friend of the world is to be at home in the world. It means that you have more in common with the world than with Christians. It means that you have more comfort in the world than in the church. And what James is saying is that it can't be both. You can't be a Christian and prefer the world. Again, he's pointing out something is wrong if that's the case. And again, it goes back to the heart. Our choices to prioritize the world means that we think that we can find what we want and the things that we desire in the world rather than in God. And it's a heart issue. It's an expectation issue. It's a, it's a belief issue, an issue of faith. This decision and this delusion to be friends with the world comes against God. It causes hostility. Look again to verse 5. The spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely. This isn't a super clear verse, right? We, we can't tell exactly if it's God's spirit in us that becomes jealous, or is it that God jealously wants our spirit? The language, the commentaries, it, it, no one knows exactly. The order is a bit hard to figure out, but the final meaning is the same, the same concept, right? It's a desire that those who have wandered away Maybe those who have been distracted by the things of the world because of the passions within them would return. That they wouldn't resist, that they would remain, that they wouldn't remain at home in the world, but that they would return. Why would a Christian resist? If we belong to God, why would we resist? Self-deception. Because we're not thinking rightly about God. Let's, let's finish up the problems of the heart by looking to verses 11 and 12. And here we'll see how we prefer self over others. So there's kind of three, three problems that we highlighted, right? Passions and pleasures, misplaced priorities, and that we prefer ourselves over others. James 4, verses 11 and 12. 
Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? If we had many months and many hours, we could highlight the many interconnections in James's writing. Uh, we'd be able to see how he builds things deeply and develops his arguments. Not in the same way as Paul, but there's lots happening in his writing. He, he makes references about the things he's about to write, and then when he gets there, he refers back to them and others. Right? In, in, in these verses, we see him bringing back the sins of the uncontrollable tongue that we considered in chapter 3. Right? He talks about slander, defaming a fellow believer. These verses are also connected to verses 1 and 2 in reference to murder. Now, the, the murder may not be physical, doesn't seem to be in, in this example here, but because of envy, because of covetousness, because of desiring things that others have that you don't, because of preferring yourself over your brother or sister, we cut others down with our words. We will destroy others with our tongue. This reference to judging the law and defaming the law refers back to chapter 2. Remember there that James talked about the royal law, to love your neighbor as yourself. This is a mark of a, of a Christian, a mark of a person who lives by faith, that we would show love to one another. Right? Love your neighbor, he wrote, not judge your neighbor. By not loving, again, inner reveals the outer, and so the outer is uh, evidence of what's happening inside. By not loving, our actions are revealing that we don't think we need the law. Even more seriously, that we are saying that we are the law. We determine right and wrong, what's good and what's bad. When you judge, brothers and sisters, you are elevating yourself to a higher place. Not as the one who abides by the law, but as the one who makes the law. You are putting yourself above God. Now let me ask you, could you have imagined that getting jealous or getting angry at someone had so much attached to it? Could you have believed that there's so much beneath it and so much behind it? That's why God's word is good for us. We need it to see our sins and to see our needs. We need it to see the seriousness of our sin, which we can so easily say, well, I had a hard week. That's why I had that burger. That person disrespected me. That's why I raised my voice. There's a lot more happening. And, and James, and God's word, and the spirit of God who dwells within us does not want us to take sin lightly. He goes on to remind that there is only one lawmaker. There's only one judge who can save and destroy. Now, we can cause serious destruction by the way that we live in sin and sinfully speak. But the one who brings final destruction is the only just God. And I think the right and necessary response for everyone who hears these words is 
Will God destroy me? Unless you live a perfect and sinless life, which I'll go ahead and answer that question for you if you're wondering, is that me? Is he talking about me? No. I'm not talking about anyone. No, no one, right? No, which is nobody who can live a perfect and sinless life. You'll hear these different ways of failing and falling, and you see your own failure in every instant, instance. It might be a sin that's fully grown in certain areas, or it might just be a seed. But if we are listening intently and rightly to God's words, we have to ask, will God destroy me? We fit in these categories, don't we? We see the problem of the human heart in our own heart, not just generally and generically. We see the need for destruction. And so what is our assurance? Friends, what is our hope? Jesus was destroyed on our behalf. The necessary destruction that would fall on sinners, all who reject God, all who are enemies of God, and the salvation, excuse me, that that necessary destruction fell on him, and the salvation of God has covered us. And friends, that's what the cross is all about. That's why it was so gruesome and horrendous. God's Wrath fell on Jesus and destroyed sin. His wrath was so great because sin is so bad. The payment of blood was necessary and willingly paid by Jesus. And the scriptures declare that by his wounds we are healed. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. This is a final and glorious salvation available to all who believe in Jesus. And so let me encourage you, friends, this morning to call on him if you haven't. He will reject no one who comes to him. If you are looking for rest, true rest, not just a temporary relief from your struggles, if you're looking for forgiveness and salvation, call on Jesus. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is and and be saved. Now, this letter, as we've considered, is written to Christians. And so what about these sins that we continue to struggle with? What about the fights and the wars? The selfishness? What, What do we do? What does the life of the one with faith do? What is the solution to these problems of the heart? It seems that there's always two options before us as believers to resist or return. And and James is calling us to return to God. James is calling us to submit to God. Look with me to that middle section, verses 6 to 10. But actually, let me just read the first few words of verse 6. But he gives greater grace. He gives grace greater grace. Friends, what beautiful words. When you lost your temper and raised your voice at your children or your spouse, there is greater grace. When you did some illegal or immoral thing at work, there is greater grace. When you engaged 
and sexual sins, whether with another person or by looking at things online that you shouldn't be looking at, there is greater grace. When you've doubted God and believed the lies of the world, there is greater grace. If you fall into a new sin or you've been struggling the same way for years, the Bible declares that there is greater grace. And I was reminded of a hymn. It made me stop my sermon preparation. I just started singing it, and I never remember all the words, so I had to look it up and then listen to it online. But here's the chorus of this hymn. And I'm not going to sing it. It's, I was telling Sam this week, it's really impressive when someone can recite lyrics of a song without the, the melody. I'm, let's see what happens now, but I'm going to try not to sing it. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Look with me to verses 6 through 8. A. That means the first part of verse 8. But he gives greater grace. And therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And so who does God give his greater grace to? The humble. Those who draw near to him. Now, here's the thing that's important for us to know, that drawing near to God is an act of faith. On our own, we can't say, I choose you, God. Right? We can't choose God on our own. We, we can't choose our, uh, excuse me, uh, we can't choose his joys over our own pleasures on our own. In the flesh, we will always choose ourselves over God. As we considered, it's deep in our hearts. It's who we are in the flesh. We are proud and arrogant because of our flesh. We elevate ourselves to, to, to higher place because of our flesh. But the only way to come to God is to bring ourselves low. This is the idea of submission. This is the, the imagery of humility and humbling yourself. You see, in salvation, he gives us the faith that we need to come to him, and we're also called to still go to him in faith. The act of going to God in and of itself is an act of faith and humility. Why? Because in our going to God, we are acknowledging, even if our going is just a prayer, a simple prayer before any other effects in our lives. In our going to God, we are acknowledging that we need Him. And that same acknowledgement also means that we know that we don't have what we need within ourselves. There is grace for those who draw near to God. <clears throat> Excuse me. Friends, you, you see, we, we're in the messes that we're in because we have chosen ourselves. And in doing so, we have distanced ourselves from God. And the farther we are from God in our heart, the greater the fear is to approach Him. I trust many of us have felt that before. But James is telling us exactly what will happen if we go to God, grace, more and more and more grace. I came across a, a poem by an American poet named Annie Johnson Flint, and I want to just read a couple stanzas from her poem, one of her poems. She writes, he gives more grace 
when the burdens grow greater. He sends more grace when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he adds his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he gives and he gives and he gives again. James knows there is a fear of rejection. He knows the temptation to resist returning, and so he's declaring it in some of the most beautiful ways that when we return to God, he will receive us. The story of the prodigal son comes to mind. A son, the younger son, preferred himself. He loved himself, and he cared for his desires above his father's, his wishes above his father's wishes, and really above anything else. So he took his inheritance money from his father, and we're told that he wasted it on worldly living. And after some time, when he spent all his wealth, he was confronted with his reality, and he realized his error, and he decided that I, I, I have no choice but to go back to my father. He prepared a speech. He, he, he felt that he needed to tell his father that he couldn't be his son anymore, but please would you just accept me so I can work because I know I, even as a servant in your house, I will be better off than where I am in the world. But as he began to return, his father saw him drawing near and he rushed to him and embraced him. He received him and restored him and celebrated his return. You see, it's faith that allows us to see our need for grace. And it's by faith that we submit to God. We, we could never do it apart from faith. So James wants us to know God and know these truths so that when we're tempted to resist, that we will return. And here's a key point from this chapter, from this teaching. Our submission to God is a sign of true faith. Again, the faith that we have is a gift. It's been given to us by God, and we're called to exercise our faith. We are called to live humbly and to humble ourselves and submit to God. And the only way we can do that is by faith, the faith that he gives. Now, what does that look like? Verses 7 through 10 give us a picture of what returning and repentance looks like. Let's read verses 7 through 9. Therefore... <clears throat> Submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Again, hours upon hours before us, but don't worry, we're not going to spend hours upon hours, but I just want you to see how much is here. Uh, I just quickly want to say a few things here, then we'll close with the promise that we see in verse 10. We have to acknowledge that this life that we live is, is a spiritual life. It's not separate from our secular or physical life. Uh, it, it is one life, but we have to acknowledge that there is a spiritual battle. 
and often we don't. And James shows us here that if we're ignorant of that, that we don't stand a chance. We'll keep fixing what we think we need to fix without any realization of, of eternal realities and spiritual realities. We'll keep thinking that we can just learn a few more things or better spiritual disciplines or some, some uh, healthier and holier habits and, and then we'll be fine. But what we need is to continually depend on God in order to live the Christian life, a life of repentance and faith, a life of repentance and faith. To help us understand this idea of resisting Satan and him fleeing with us, we can look to Jesus' temptation. It helps us understand what it means that if we resist the devil, he will flee. Jesus, in the middle of his temptation, he was tempted with three major things, three categories of, of, of things. In the middle of his temptation, he trusted God's word over the lies of the devil. He kept believing again, through these three major temptations, and then the devil fled. Did the, the, the devil just leave for the rest of Jesus' earthly life? No. We know that he and, and temptations aren't going, gone forever. We know how we return later in Jesus' life, but that battle, that, that experience of temptation did eventually end. See, that's what James is talking about, this idea that if you resist, that he will flee. And just like us, if we resist, eventually there will be relief. Not forever relief, at least in this earthly life. Things will continue to return, but there is victory and space for victory. And the way that we resist is twofold, right? There's two things that we see. We stand against the lies and we turn to the truth. We stand against the lies and we turn to the truth. We draw near to God. James wants us to understand the depth of our sin, he doesn't want us to be double-minded, right? And remember, that's the idea of, of trying to be in two places at once. It's, it's an idea of division. It's an idea of, of lacking wholeness. And James wants us to be whole. Isn't that what you want? Do you, do you want to be a divided person that trusts some promises of God, but then you're seeing things over here? No. We want rest and we want peace, and that comes from wholeness. James wants us to understand the depth of sin and only when we do will we weep over it. You see, just as real faith works, just as real faith submits, real repentance changes. But again, every command here that's listed, verses 7 through 9, is impossible for us on our own strength. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Weep and mourn, and be miserable. Friends, we, we can't do these things on our own, and so what do we need? God's grace. God's grace. One pastor said it this way, grace alone makes it possible for us to walk with God, just as grace alone made us the children of God to begin with. Let's come to an end with verse 10. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This middle section in verse 6 begins with a warning that leads to a promise, right? God res uh, resists the proud. And then here it ends with a command that leads to a promise. 
Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And then here, the command that leads to a promise. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Friends, brothers and sisters, this is true in our lives. Through our humility, and let me say it this way, though our humility may look strange and weak in this world, God will lift us up and he will keep us near him. And so this reality is true in this world in our lifetime, but it's also ultimately true in the world to come. Because Christ is exalted, we too who are found in him by faith and through grace, God's greater grace, we will be exalted and we will be with him for eternity. May these eternal truths and God's greater grace lead our lives through whatever may come. Amen. Let's pray. Your grace, O oh God, is what we need. We think we might have other needs. We may have even come this morning because we think we need something else. But Father, we declare together that we need your grace. We need a grace that is greater than all our sin. And Father, thank you that you give it so freely and so richly. Father, we recognize that that is free to us and yet it comes at a great cost from you. So we thank you, Father God. Minister to us, Father, in the ways that only you can. Be glorified in our church and in our lives, Father. Use us to minister to one another. Lord, help us to be a people that extend grace because we have received grace. And through all of these things, Father, would you be glorified. It's in your name we pray. Amen.